our destination. Our destination is the stars. the sci-fi round table i'm john cronshaw i'm shane thomas and we are joined today by ken goodsward hey guys damon ballard is joining us again as well hey everybody and today we're talking about lost civilizations this is a topic i've been really excited about uh because as very few of you probably know i posted that i needed episodes of joe rogan experience to listen to while driving around i overwhelmingly got the response that i need to listen to the graham hancock episodes and uh, as I did, John and I were talking, and it turns out that he is also a Graham Hancock fan. I'm a fan of, I suppose you call them, ancient mysteries. Now, I'll just start off with a little caveat and say, I don't necessarily buy what Graham Hancock says or does, but I like that he's essentially a journalist coming into this with a different perspective, and he's opening up a lot of questions and bringing together a lot of disparate disciplines and kind of showing overlap between different points of research. And I think that what he's doing is really fascinating in those regards. Whether it's true or not doesn't matter to me because to me it's just great story fuel. So, <laughs> Yeah, that, I do enjoy myself some ancient aliens uh, as a... Uh, you know, a guilty pleasure because uh, honestly, the conclusions they draw from absolute nothing. Logical fallacy on logical fallacy is amazing. They overlap and they don't agree with each other. But at the same time, it is, as you said, uh, John, it's just, it's just pure story fuel. You can take that and you could drop a couple of, you know, a MacGuffin or slip a couple of facts into it. And yeah, yeah. You've just bloomed this whole new story realm that you can play in. Yeah, well, I'm glad I'm in, I'm not the only one who uh, loves a bit of ancient aliens. <laughs> um, I see it as a case of not throwing the baby out with the bathwater because there are a few shows on TV where you will find long scenes of these megalithic structures they're not alien structures, you know, they're not. That is a, that is a great point. Just to listen to ancient aliens on mute would still be a bit of a learning experience. It's fascinating just as, okay, this is some ancient history. It might be evidence of a lost civilization, whether it's ancient aliens. I mean, that to me is a bit far-fetched. And I usually find that there's the logical leap of, okay, this is a funny looking rock. And if it was made by aliens, what if these aliens could travel between dimensions and those dimensions would be this? And therefore, Atlantis, ancient aliens, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) It is a bit of a jump. But at the same time, you do see that there is money being spent into legitimate research into these cities that are, you know, being reclaimed by the jungle that wouldn't otherwise be spent just out of people's need to know and driven by that has anyone seen the uh, national geographic show lost civilization of the maya or, or something about the maya where they focus heavily on new lidar no but i bet that's fascinating because i can imagine that there's a lot of places in especially the amazon where there's just stuff that's completely been lost and buried for- oh yeah that's what they're finding they had maybe a dozen sites before but after lidar there's hundreds of pyramids and wow. buildings Oh, and absolutely. And some of them are larger than anything that we've ever seen before. Right. Yeah. And the forest is literally growing on top of them. So if you looked, yeah. it would just look like trees on a hill. 
but it's really this pyramid. There's a kid obsessed with ancient civilizations, and he was just scrolling through slowly on Google Maps, and he found a city that nobody knew about. You know, so he reached out to you know some researchers, and they used techniques like LIDAR and uh, satellite uh, imaging and such things. And they were like, yeah, he was right. There's a city. And he got to name it or something like that. It was fun. It was really cool. He was like 15. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty wild. One thing that I really think is kind of cool about Graham Hancock and that kind of connection is this tie-in that he mentions that I don't hear a lot of in other theories or whatever is the connection to the ice age that's such a big thing that when the ice age i mean the ice age i was going to say when the ice age ended but that's not even right to say because we're still currently in the last ice age uh, which began two and a half million years ago and when there was a large meltwater twelve thousand years ago there was these large meltwater events and the ocean level rose 400 feet so What's underneath this 400 feet of water that is now our coastline? That's basically the whole continental shelf. There's so many billions of square miles that are buried under the water that are all ancient coastlines, which is, if you look at 90% of the world today, where are all the major cities? I believe 60% of the population lives on the coastline. So if that rapidly changed, most people would be dislocated or worse. There's a theory, isn't there, about 12,600 years ago about the idea of some kind of asteroid event or comet kind of thing hitting the ice sheets in North America, Greenland, that kind of thing, which caused this flood, which we see in the Epic of Gilgamesh, we see in the Bible, we see all over the world, ancient myths in Japan and things like that, that mention this big worldwide catastrophe that destroyed most of humanity. To me, that does make sense when you look at places like the Scablands in Washington State, which are just clear evidence of just a massive, terrible flood. If there was an advanced civilization or a lost civilization, that would be exactly the type of thing that would remove it, that would end that, and the people who'd be left would be the kind of scraps. Yeah, or yeah, the exactly. uh, the one guy from the advanced civilization that was traveling out of town and it was yeah, on yeah, the sticks yeah. or up on some mountaintop and happened to make it. And, and he's a flying saucer. <laughs> <laughs> now, he doesn't uh, – Graham Hancock never gets into flying saucers, but I think that if they did have some sort of technology that could move these heavy stones, then it wouldn't be that far-fetched for them to move a small – saucer or or ship of some other shape this the same balbok in lebanon i don't know if you've seen this this is the it's called the temple of jupiter it's a site in lebanon and, and it's it's a roman temple and it's built on these three foundation blocks that are 750 tons each they're about 100 foot long and then nearby there's even bigger one there's like i think it's a 1200 ton one that is further down the valley and then one that's kind of stuck in the quarry that's about 1500 tons which i think they call like the pregnant woman and it's like absolutely immense kind of rocks that have been cut you know they're cut stones and it's the type of thing that we could have only moved in the last 10 to 15 years with our technology so how this got up a massive hill and have a quarry and all this stuff on, you know, the theories like wooden rollers and ramps and leverage. It it just, it seems either just crazy advanced 
in terms of engineering, in terms of the rollers or whatever, how that would work and the sheer manpower. You're referring to the stone of the pregnant woman. I have the stats here, and it's um, you're correct. It's 1,200 tons. I've got a picture here that I actually screenshotted off of Ancient Aliens. Somebody did the math on what it would take to lift that, and they did an artist rendition of how we could do it with our modern equipment. And it's 21 heavy lift cranes, and right. they're, they're lined up around this thing <laughs> so that you can't even – like there's no way to move it because if, if you all they it, can do you is get to it. it anywhere. I mean, to be fair, that's the one that's still in the quarry, isn't it? So that one didn't yes. get moved. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> so you know they weren't that advanced. Let's be honest. <laughs> You've got these three stones that are like perfectly shoved together, and you know the Romans just couldn't do that stuff. So this was probably built on an older site, a much older site, and and just little things like that. I'll just find absolutely fascinating. But. The weathering on the Sphinx that Anthony Michael West. Or you're talking about David Schock. Yeah, how they noticed that there was uh, thousands of years worth of rain had fallen on the base of the Sphinx to cause mm-hmm. these deep kind of rivets weathering it. And the only time in history that there was that much rain was, you know, over nine or 10,000 years ago. The wear doesn't match up with necessarily the story that we're aware of so it leaves a giant question mark it doesn't necessarily mean that what we're implying from that (laughs) means that the sphinx predated uh, the egyptians but at the same time it certainly leaves a question of why is there so much more water wear on the stone than should be explainable there's the water wear stuff that's interesting i think the biggest thing for me on the egyptian stuff is okay with the sphinx you've got the carving of the face which just seems a lot more cruder than the actual lion part of it so that looks like it was done later to me and it's got um, a bit of a pinhead as well <laughs> yeah the head's yeah. too small isn't it yeah it's yeah. It, it looks wrong like this makes no sense that the earliest pyramids are more geographically aligned they're more geometrically perfect you know they've got all these things going on and then the newer ones the more recent ones are of worse quality it's as almost as if they started at the peak and then declined which doesn't really make much sense in terms of you know how we develop in terms of history and things like that so because typically you uh, you improve your craft as you go yeah so the the idea of right we've got the pyramid of giza and then, okay, it's all, it's all going to kind of go downhill from there. I can't remember which one it is. I think it's in the Fingerprints of the Gods book the, where, where he's talking about the Sphinx. And, you know, he's got this idea. I think John Anthony West almost goes, like, way older as well because he, he talks about the idea of the precession of the equinox, which is the idea that the Earth's on a on a tilt and it kind of goes on this tilt on a 25,000-year period, something like that. Thereabouts, sure yeah. And, 25, 27, something like that. So the idea is, is that when... The Sphinx was built. You had this rain stuff, which kind of dates it back to about 12,000 years, which would align with Leo. And then it would also mean that the pyramids around Giza would also align with Orion, like the three pyramids around it. So mm-hmm. if you go with the astrological alignment stuff, then this really dates it back a lot longer. Right, and that matches up with uh, the Sahara not being a desert. Like a fertile place. And it was prior to, I think, around 12, 15,000 years ago. I think the conventional theory was that there were no megalithic advanced civilizations before about 5,000 BC. And then we've seen we've got Gugepli Tepe in Turkey, which has been carbon dated. I want to know what those 
pillars say? You know, those, it looks like just yeah. carvings of animals and things. I think it's got to be some sort of symbolic language. There is some kind of astrological alignment and they're probably constellation matching, but to constellations that we don't recognize just because they're dots. <laughs> you know, they've made their own images and stuff. Right. Um, yeah, I've, I've heard a bit of, I believe that was at the end of uh, Magicians of the Gods where he kind of theorized that it might be astrological and if you take, you know, this limb from this zodiac and put it over here mm. and move that over there. And it seems like the whole site was, you know, they would build one set of circles, carve it up, and then bury it and then make another one. Yeah. So I wonder if they're saying different information <laughs> every time or if it's, you know, was this their training grounds for, uh, you know, going other places and setting up different cultures that, you know, each generation or each, Every so often you have your new team go and do it the same as they've always done in the past and then set off to try to, you know, start society somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a stuff in South Africa, which I'm, I don't think Graham Hancock ever mentions actually, but it's a thing called Adam's calendar in South Africa, which is, it's been dated to about 75,000 years old. And this is a, I mean, it's, it's a really kind of rudimentary stone circle thing, but you know, these are astronomically aligned as well. So this idea of lining big, massive stones up to <laughs> these things seem, seem to have some kind of resonance in the past. And, uh, yeah, just so alien to us, isn't it? Yeah, I think the most intriguing part of the theory of a lost, advanced civilization is that, it, especially now where we have that access to modern uh, archaeology and DNA evidence, and we know things like modern human beings have existed in this form for 200,000 years, and we have written history for 5,000 years. Yeah. So there's- We've also got the fact that we also know that we interbred with not just Cro-Magnon, but Denisovan and at least two others. We only know that those are the ones we've interbred with because those are the only other hominin species whose genomes have been mapped and there's over 20 different species of hominin how how much of our dna is you know if you don't have direct ancestry from africa i'm pretty sure that a good percentage of you has been shared in ancestry among all these different hominins rather than just homo sapiens have any of you guys um done this thing called 23andme no, it's this, it's this, um, DNA analysis. You basically give them a blood sample and then they come back with, you've got like this much of a couple percent of, um, all these various different people groups, right? And it's astounding to me when, when we looked at our results back, we're like, Oh man, like I know that my grandparents on one side are Dutch and on the other, other side, uh, there's English and Scottish. And so I didn't really expect to see different parts of DNA from South Africa and from Mongolia. And like, it's insane the amount of small percentages of widespread DNA that actually turns out we all have. Like, so this idea that we, we have of our ancestors being, you know, stuck in the essentially like they didn't have jet planes, they weren't going on vacations. So we tend to think of our ancestors as being stuck farming and never going anywhere. But that clearly 
isn't as cut and dry as we think because the, we're seeing it in in our DNA. And I think that this is true of of everyone who does this DNA analysis is that there's all these just minute amounts of very, very widespread genealogies that, that we all carry. You know, there's something not right here about our assumptions. It means we've moved a lot. Our ancestors have moved around. It means that there's been probably historical interactions that we may be no longer aware of. I mean, the, the genetic stuff, which I think helped to raise a lot of questions about the Clovis stuff in America was the idea that there were some tribes in the Amazon who had the same genetic markers that only appeared in Australian Aborigines, which mm-hmm. suggests there was some interaction, you know, a long time ago between these two groups, which would suggest that there's some kind of seafaring going on. Going back a little bit to the things that we might find, I mean, depending on what and how long ago it was, a lost civilization, we see it in our own civilization. You have an abandoned town and how quickly nature begins to overrun it. It doesn't take very long at all. No, especially not with the the building techniques that we use. You know, I mean, it takes longer with a megalithic pyramid and whatnot. But even then, as we know, with the the cities in the Amazon and such that even they get swallowed up by the jungle in over hundreds of years. So over thousands, tens, you know, even a hundred thousand years, what would possibly be left that we would be able to identify? The ancient alien uh, theorists and whatnot like to point to various devices and objects that we found. One of those being the Antikythera mechanism. Are you familiar yeah. with that? It's, it's yeah. the shipping one in Greece that was found in a shipwreck. Is that that one? Right. It And it appears from the x-rays and whatnot, at least one of the articles I've personally read about it, that it may have been kind of like an astronomical clock. The manufacturing of the gears and the mechanism itself is Swiss watch level precise. And that's at least 2,000 years old. Well, they know that the shipwreck itself was over 2,000 years old, but they think the device itself is significantly older. Wow. It looks like it's made out of brass or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think it was gold. No, it definitely was made out of something that was capable of uh, corrosion. Right. So it must have been, the shipwreck itself must have been located in such a way that uh, it, that it was preserved anaerobically. I'm mm-hmm. assuming that so that there wasn't any rust or whatever going on in that thing. Now, if you think about that, and we know that people have been building with brass and stuff for many, many thousands of years, and with gold, there's no question that all the ancient civilizations had very high-level skills of gold working. Maybe they were also using steel or iron or other kind of alloys that the only reason we see a pyramid now as a purely a stone device is because all the steel that was part of it has long rusted away. How long would it take for, say, a skyscraper in New York to rust to the point where it is basically gone? A couple hundred years, maybe Mm -hmm. a thousand, you know? So all you'd have left would be the foundation. So who's to say that a pyramid isn't part of a building perhaps the pyramid is there and it's made of stone but surrounding the pyramid are several metal buildings or or wood buildings 
that have long since deteriorated. It could have been the, the footing of something truly, truly massive that has since fallen away. And don't forget, gold has always been valuable. So if the pyramids had been entirely plated with gold at one point, that gold would have gotten stripped off and used for later works. There's lots of little objects that we've found that we don't really have an explanation for. That mechanism is one. There's the uh, what's called the London Hammer. Are you familiar with that one? Oh, yeah. Yes, I've seen that one. That's London, Texas, right? Yeah. The whole idea... And this, you know, when you look it up, most of the sites that come up are things like ancient code and stuff like that, which, of course, you know, tells you kind of what bent that's going to have. The idea being that this iron hammer with a wooden shaft is embedded in this stone that has been dated to be 400 million years old. Well, it's interesting because I actually just stumbled across that particular one like about a week ago. I haven't hadn't actually heard of it before. As much as I would like to believe that there were hammers 400 million years ago, that's a long time ago. And mm-hmm. um, I think in the initial reports, there was some uh, issue with the way the stone itself was described. So I believe the... 400 million year old stone was depicted as like a sandstone, whereas in actual fact, it's more of like a gravelly accretion, Mm -hmm. uh, which is probably a lot more recent. And then the other thing, I guess, would be the fact that the iron is not very rusty. The accusation is that at the time that it was forged or created into its hammer shape, the air pressure was different. It explains why it has the patina on the outside and that if you score it, you see the clean iron underneath. It quickly becomes. That kind of logic uh, kind of smacks to me. Of, it, it's uh, kind of, of like a newer a creationist kind of a view. Yeah. It's, it's like, well, you know, the earth was different 6,000 years ago. So that's kind of stretching logic a little bit, but it's yeah. still a fascinating thing in and of itself. You've got this iron hammer and the wooden shaft that is encased in some sort of stone, which makes it pretty darn old. Again, you've got a one-off object with nothing else discovered around it. So people tend to fill in what they want to see. It's a curiosity, just like the mechanism and whatnot, but that's where authors get to play. You can take that and other one-off things that don't have any context other than just, this is weird. This is weird is not a fact point unto itself. You've not been watching Ancient Aliens. That's exactly a fact point. That means it was put there by aliens. Come on. (laughs) But we don't need to hang evidence on one-off objects because there's so much systematic evidence. Like a great example is the Piri Reese map. Oh, yeah. There's a couple other ones. Antarctica accurate that we couldn't do until we had radar in the 1960s. Yeah. Right. And this is not just one map. There's at least three different maps that are contemporary, but with different sources from different countries, they probably did not share that information because they were like um, rivaling. Yeah. Rival, yeah, rival explorers. Right. And uh, all of these old, old maps, they're all admittedly by the uh, illustrators or the cartographers 
copies of even older sources that don't exist anymore in libraries that don't exist anymore. We're writing on papyrus or or other forms of leather or or hide, whatever. And these things are going to deteriorate over time, especially if we're talking about a culture that's 12,000 years old. You would have to copy from one scroll to another or or do as the Hebrew priests did and just literally memorize parts of the Torah and repeat them verbatim to one another to make sure you contain that old memory. There's right. that. And there's also the the reuse of paper, of books, as we found with uh, – it was a, mathem- a Greek mathematician, and we found an entire work of his that had been essentially erased and replaced with a Bible. And it's only our modern techniques. Somebody was scanning it and noticed something strange in the scan. So they started looking deeper and they realized there was a ghost image of a previous work on the paper. Wow. And they were able to reclaim that. So what have we lost to things like that where somebody didn't know the value of something, so they reused it? Here's yeah. uh, my favorite question about the whole lost civilization theory is what has humanity retained as far as technology, uh, philosophy, and actual society as a whole? What have, what have we retained and from whom has it come down? In my mind, that is one of the birthplaces of secret societies is uh, mm-hmm. they're the retainers of some ancient wisdom and a lot of them even point their own heritage back to Egyptian knowledge and pre-Egyptian knowledge. That brings us right to the Library of Alexandria, which I think is interesting for two reasons. One, we know for a fact that there was millions of books, essentially. They weren't in book form as we would see them today, but millions of ancient books that contained the entire wisdom of the world And that we went in and burned them down, essentially. And it wasn't even just a single event, but there was a systematic destruction. Seeking out and destruction of all ancient knowledge, yeah. Yeah. Which Um, happened in China as well. uh, Some some cultures still practice knowledge destruction. South America in the 1500s. Right. I, I would posit that all cultures still practice this. And we're still guilty of it right now. Like we're doing it all the time because whatever, everyone's got a ax to grind. And so we're always bending the truth or presenting different versions of the truth. Deleting that drunken tweet or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Like, so, so there's always information being lost either intentionally or not. Even our great academics that we recognize like Plato, for example, Nobody has any issues with Plato. He's a great philosopher. We can learn everything from him. Oh, except for this one part, because he talks about Atlantis. That's BS. What? This doesn't make any sense, guys. Uh, yeah, his his information is the foundation for all these disciplines, except for this. And mm-hmm. uh, the Atlantis talk is just him having silly story hour. The problem we have with legends uh, and you know, stories like that, something where, such as Plato recording what he had heard, is that more often than not in stuff like that, there is some base kernel of truth 
the timeline with the Atlantis stuff when he talks about it being 9,000 years before Sauron, which takes it back to 12,000 years ago, which takes it back to this catastrophe at the end of the Younger Dryas, you know, that's the big flood kind of thing where the sea levels rose and just kind of going back a bit to when we were talking about the maps, there were quite a few of these maps that showed evidence of the Bimini Road, which is underwater now, you know, near the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. I mean, I read Graham Hancock's book, Underworld, over the summer, and he talks about all these places that he visited, did these kind of scuba diving things on the coast of Japan and India and the Bahamas right. and places like that. And, you know, found evidence of probably ancient structures, ancient cities and things like that, deep under the water that had just been hidden for millennia. Like the Bimini Road, this is supposedly natural. I mean, it could be, but if you look at it, there's a lot of right angles. There's a lot of things like geometrical archways and a thing that looks like a perfect letter J and stuff like this that's under the water. So the idea of an advanced city that was flooded, that was destroyed 12,000 years ago. How much lies under tens or hundreds of feet of silt and muck and what? Exactly. So, you know, is it out of the question that that civilization exists. I mean, we know that there were civilizations that just, for no reason that we can quite understand, they just up and died. Yeah. We don't know if it was environmental, if it was war, if it was some sort of play. We don't know. Or for that matter, if people simply gave up and left, some Mm -hmm. of those, it looks like civilization was simply abandoned. You could see that with some places in America. There's like the old oil prospecting towns and things like that, which are just completely abandoned and look like something from the 1880s or whatever. A localized natural disaster can make a city completely unlivable. Yeah, I mean, I suppose there's the New Orleans thing, like when the river changed course. I mean, just stuff like that can just have massive impacts. And Detroit, I mean, that's kind of having a bit of a resurgence. But for a while there, that place was looking like it was going to be an abandoned city. My uh, wife's cousin and his wife did their uh, graduate studies in Detroit. And some of their friends were talking about staying because you could buy a house for a dollar. But the problem is when you go to that house, it doesn't have utilities anymore because no one's living on that block. You know, there's no lights, there's no running water, but you can have a whole house. That's an opportunity to create a localized microgrid if you wanted to go in. That is an interesting point. And, but it also demonstrates how interconnected and how reliant on society we all are, even if we feel Absolutely. like we're independent. That goes to the point. There's a city in this country called Stoke-on-Trent, which for a while, it, you know, it was a big center of the pottery industry, which completely collapsed. And in the early 2000s, you could buy a street for a pound because it was just there was no value in living in the middle of Stoke-on-Trent. I mean, it's kind of improved a bit now, but it's had a lot of regeneration, but it was it was a complete and utter mess there just because of the collapse of an industry and people just leaving the town. You know, for work, sometimes I'll go to uh, like a giant paper mill and and the town that surrounds it is it's there will be a Walmart and a McDonald's, a couple gas stations, and then other small businesses that just, you know, either support the mill, like a bunch of uh, metal fab shops and things that are putting the equipment in the mill that the mill uses, and, and not a heck of a lot else. And, and then there will be, you know, quite a ways down the road before the next town. So when those mills close, the McDonald's and Walmart can't sustain a town. They, you have to actually have 
uh, some sort of manufacturing. You know, it can't all be service and distribution industry to keep a society running. So when you think about uh, and the smallest unit of society or civilization would be a city or a town. And if it can't even come close to sustaining itself, that's when you see these really depressed economic situations. I've kind of played with this myself in some of my work. It's the idea of self-sustainability. You know, you have an off-world colony, but that colony, because of its size and population and the conditions of the world in question, make it so that it is still dependent upon the home world. Now, it's possible that you could have a situation of a colony where something happens and it loses that connection to its source. So you end up with a couple of scenarios. It just simply dies out or it falls into barbarism and has to pull itself back up. So it might have had a big enough population to not die out completely, but there's going to be a lot of people that are going to die. You're going to lose most of the knowledge. You know, there's also the thing of disease. South America, I mean, you bring over smallpox and then all of a sudden you've killed 20 million people in a very short space of time. Exactly. It could be something as simple as a pathogen that causes that particular colony to have to be cut off. There's also even more intentional ways of this happening. And if you look at a couple of examples from ancient Egypt, when I forget the name of the pharaoh who decided that monotheism would be cool, he essentially said, hey, guys, we're going to start a new religion and uh, we're actually going to start a new city, too. So take everything. Let's move over here 50 miles down the road, whatever. And he built a city. And then he was popular for a few years and then not so much. So then everyone left his new city and went back to another city. Yeah, and they deliberately, systematically destroyed that city he built in order to rebuild stuff that was destroyed or damaged by him because of his move to just being a sun worshiper. Akhenaten, that's his name. Akhenaten, that's, that's yeah. him. Wasn't Tutankhamun his kid? Yes, right? uh, they they believe that Tutankhamun was Akhenaten's son. But again, it's hard to know because uh, there was such a blatant... Attempt to scrub him from history. Yeah, they basically kind of destroyed all the monuments and the histories and all that stuff. One of the reasons I got into writing is uh, building... Uh, campaigns for RPGs. I get the impression that a lot of authors at least have some RPG background. That's how I got into it as well, yeah. (laughs) But I built one where there was an ancient lost civilization. We're talking highly advanced spacefaring, etc., that collapsed, and it collapsed millions of years ago. And There's no clear evidence of it anymore, except for some ancient underground military structures and whatnot, which are literally buried hundreds of feet beneath the ground. The big one of uh, whatever year in California actually uncovers one of those. That's the impetus of the uh, campaign, is exploring that. 
That that this actually reminds me of uh, Alien versus Predator, the movie where they find oh, yes. this million year old ruin underneath Antarctica. That could happen. That could actually literally be there. How do we tell? Sorry, but that's just reminding me of, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation probably, but Derinkayu in Turkey, which is an underground city. It's about 30 oh, yeah. Oh, there, yeah. Oh, there's, oh, yeah. yeah, that sounds yeah. really cool. And I, I think that's about 5,000 years old, isn't it? Like, yeah. that, mm-hmm. to me, is insane because that's built like a bunker. It's locked from the inside, and it's basically a self-sustaining city with air holes and everything. If that, we're thinking about the same underground city in Turkey that the dating is inconclusive because it's been almost constantly used yeah, since it was created. Yeah. So there's no way to tell who first built it because there's all this newer evidence leaving newer dates on it. And not only that, but it's not just one city. It's actually probably hundreds of these interconnected cities that are interconnected with tunnels that are miles long. And then these hive-like structures underground that it's most likely they were inhabited by thousands of people. That to me sounds like, yeah, definitely like a bunker type of situation where these people were either afraid of everything going bad or had lived through it and wanted to be prepared for next time or were in a state in between things going bad and getting worse. Or it could just be uh, that it was too cold outside. We are in an ice age, and 12,000, 20,000, 50,000 years ago, there were humans around. We know this, and we also know that humans have been producing artwork and have some evidence of cultural, if not civilization. I'm, I'm using air quotes here, but certainly culture. Uh, because we see cave art and things like that as far back as 300,000 years ago, that is not a speculation. That's, that's accepted mainstream dating for the art. So if we're okay with having that old of art, why not writing? Why not culture? Why not other of these aspects, right? If we're talking from abstract thought to society and we're thinking that we did it in 5,000 years, and you're seeing evidence of it 300,000 years ago. Well, 300,000 minus 5,000 is still 295,000 years ago. Exactly. Right. And that, that touches on the sentient sentience consciousness question of at what point do you achieve the ability to create these structures, to create these things? And what does that mean? Perhaps it wasn't even humans. Perhaps humans that just happened to be and that's kind of the conclusion we have when we talk about Cro-Magnon and Denisovan and the other uh, hominids, is that our version of hominid just happened to be better at it for whatever reason. Not whatever reason. I wrote an article about this. We we were better at it because we were children for longer. Mm. It, it was right around 10 or 11 years old. They all went through puberty, whereas we had... Uh, tween and teen years before we became adults, we had double the length of childhood as Neanderthal, Homo erectus, uh, maybe even Florensasis, and several several hominins that existed that they were able to see progression from youth into adulthood. Our double length there allowed us more time for creative and abstract thought. 
Hmm. So more moping around is better. For them. <laughs> yeah, if you're hanging around listening to your Green Day albums, complaining about yard work, then you are going to be a better human than uh, someone that just gets a job and has a family. <laughs> I can actually kind of see that because then you're you're in that position where you know what's coming and you are in an opportunity to try and find something to make it easier for you. Oh, yeah, maybe all of our technology is just born out of laziness. They are uh, <laughs> tools to benefit us after all. Time enough for love by Robert Heinlein. He says the most inventive people are just lazy people who want to do things a bit easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is it? Uh, Albert Einstein, was he the one that said uh, necessity is the mother of invention? I don't know if it was Einstein, but it might have been Frank Zappa. Okay. <laughs> Somebody said it. I'd written a few things down, actually, just that I wanted to touch on. And, and one of them was the, here we go, butchering the name again, the Gunung Padang in Indonesia, which is yeah. another, another buried um, pyramid. Yeah. You know, that's been carbon dated to 20,000 years BC at least. That's um, perhaps the most exciting possibility for what Atlantis could have been if that was the mountain city on the continent where Atlantis was. But now that yeah. whole continent is underwater. In terms of global distances and things like Antarctica to Indonesia isn't so far as thinking about Antarctica to Europe or whatever. I mean, it's still far enough, but that kind of distance and having a seafaring thing that will, you know, it's almost like the next major continent, isn't it, down below? Well, you've got, you've got the Atlantis and then you've actually got some additional civilizations such as Mu. Are you familiar with the Mu legends at all? They're not as commonly heard about because no, everybody loves Atlantis. Depending on which stories you, you get your hands on, Mu was either directly related to Atlantis or was a... Like a rival? Exactly. It would make more sense to me that if there were an advanced civilization, that there would be other rivaling civilizations. Mm -hmm. it's a, I think half of our advancements have come through competition. Uh, the Cold War is a great example. One layout I saw puts Atlantis where people think of it, somewhere in the north central uh, Atlantic towards the European side and Mu in the South Pacific towards uh, Australia and all that. I saw Which, a really interesting bit about the eye of Africa. Have you heard of this? No. This is a, another proposed location for Atlantis. In Africa, it's like literally uh, landlocked right now. Like I think it's in Mauritania. Google it. Uh, the Eye of Africa, Atlantis. Google that. There's some really incredible videos. Actually, quite a lot of stuff out there. Some of it is very convincing. But another interesting thing is that, as Graham Hancock says, we are a species with amnesia. So... What about this lost knowledge that we have forgotten about? What I find really interesting is that we haven't lost all of it because there's still these clues and traces around that we know about, but we disregard. For example, the ancient calendars, the supposedly Mayan calendar, which actually predates the Mayan, and the Sumerian calendar, both of these calendars are extremely long. The Mayan calendar is still working and still accurate to this day. And it starts 22,000 years ago. Whereas the Sumerian calendar, I don't know if you're familiar with this one, goes back an incredible 
232,000 years ago. It's mind boggling. Like I can't even think of that kind of an age. And yet the Sumerians had this calendar and we like to think of Sumeria. The mainstream thinks of the Sumerians as the, the original the civilization, civilization yeah. 3000 years BC. And yet their own calendar states that it's actually 230 million years previously. A lot of cultures like Egypt and the Incas have this figure, this uh, white guy with a big beard, Thoth or Hermes. The Hebrew Bible calls him Enoch, the grandfather of Noah. And he right. lived before the big catastrophe. And works that claim him as the author have survived today, including uh, Hermetica, and the Book of Enoch, part of which was found in uh, Nag Hammadi Library. In, yeah, in the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, and the rest of which has survived. Well, the, it survived in its entirety. I forget in which country, but its translations have been available for the last hundred years. And Hermetica, just in 1990, had uh, a guy from uh, UCAL, Brian Copenhaver, did an English translation of Hermetica. It's available on Amazon. I bought a copy after listening to Graham Hancock and I've been working my way through it. So there's two or three different works that claim authorship by this guy that was around from before the flood in the Old Testament. And in Egypt, the Corpus Hermeticum emerged two or 3,000 years ago, contemporary with early Christian writings. But it claims that it was a much older document like we see with the maps, where it's a copy of a copy. Looking at the eye of Africa, that thing is cool. There's all there's another one, uh, and I don't know the name of it, but there is a structure on the African coast. But it would require that the water levels be significantly higher. And the way it looks, it looks like a ship dock where you would actually pull in ships up inside the cliff. Now, there's been Ooh. collapses and whatnot, so you can't actually tell how deep and how expansive it is. Ooh. But it was clearly made to dock ships. So, again, the, there's another, well... Shoot, this is clearly an artificial thing. You know, it's not a maybe. It's clearly an artificial thing. There are tool marks, right? But there's wow. nothing else that we know about it because there's no other documentation about it. It goes back to that we are a people with amnesia. Why do we have amnesia? Is this Why I of Africa man-made? I'm just looking at this picture now. Well, there's debate about that. So they also call the Eye of Africa the Ricot structure, if you want a different way to Google it. R-I-C-A-T, I believe. It's not clear whether that's man-made or not, because it kind of looks like a collapsed volcano. Sure, if it just fell something. in on itself. Yeah. yeah. There's something strange happening here, because in a lot of the videos, it's very evident and clear, like the... You know, you can't go here because this place is super dangerous. Uh, there's all these, you know, drug lords that are going to gun you down if you show up. And yet I then came across one video where a guy was like, oh, screw it. I'm going to go check this out. So he lands in the whatever. I can't remember the name of the, the nearest city that has an airport, but he, he flies in. He rents a car. He hires a couple of locals and he goes out to this place. 
I mean, I guess it's dangerous in the sense that there's a lot of sand fleas that can give you disease, but there's nobody with guns showing up to keep him out. And he gives us a really nice tour of this whole area. Now, it's so huge that you can't take it all in. But when he uh, sort of shows us, okay, now I'm at this, like this is the outer ring kind of area. And as he's on this, he kind of climbs up this bank. And to me, it looks like if you've ever been along the seashore, they will do reinforcements. Like they'll dump a bunch of stone there to stop erosion, right? Uh And it looks a lot like that where there's just these large rocks that to me, they look like they were put there. This doesn't look to me like a natural structure. And then it's very much like a 45 degree angle that he has has to climb up and then he gets to the top of it and it's flat as you can possibly imagine. It looks like a bulldozer came and just flattened this place out and it would have been a perfect place for the city. I think probably there were wooden buildings there that obviously are, are there's no no trace of anymore. But you can easily imagine a whole, look at, say, um, Victorian London or even Roman London, that kind of a scale of a city could have been built on this area that has these alternating raised areas and the lower areas that would have been harbor, just as Plato described. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I guess the sea level would have had to be even higher than it is now. Or almost like a continental drift type of a thing where the tectonic plates shift. Wow. There's a lot of interesting stuff on this planet that just goes without explanation. Yeah. Aliens. (laughs) It's all the aliens. Yep. 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 (laughs) Even if it is the aliens, they still need an explanation. (laughs) There is a line that Graham Hancock uses which resonated with me was just like our entire view of history can change with the next turn of the spade. That does keep happening. We do get paradigm shifts in our understanding of this history stuff. Sure. I mean, when we were kids, they didn't know what killed the dinosaurs. I still have old 70s and 80s uh, dinosaur books that I read to my kids where they're only theorizing it might have been a meteor. And you know what? It gives us a little bit of hope because I think Graham's right in that. And that if you look especially at Gobekli Tepe, this is probably the only case where we've just disproved everything we know. And it's actually being taken seriously in a way that none of the previous stuff, like the Egyptian uh, chronologies falling into your question and, and all these other types of things where... People have been raising questions for a long time, usually falling on deaf ears. Finally, with Gobekli Tepe and a few of these other sites, it is such a cut and dry case that nobody can say, "Mm, yeah, I don't think so. And so it's actually being taken seriously by the mainstream academia. This was a site that was purposefully buried 10,000 years ago. The carbon dating dates it to that. You've got stuff that is done in high relief, which is meant to be in a time before people were using metal tools. You know, this is supposed to be hunter-gatherers doing this as well, which, of course, being able to build a city on this scale with such intricate carvings does raise questions about what kind of society, what kind of civilization existed around it. And we've only seen, I think, about 5% of what's believed to be still buried. Yeah, if that, I think I heard 1%. 
Wow. <laughs> we have so many legends, so many puzzle pieces that we don't know how they fit together. We have so much lost knowledge, and yet we still have we have knowledge of what may have been in the past. But, you know, as you were just saying, it, so much of it has just kind of been written off because it doesn't fit the narrative. And that mm-hmm. that is what the ancient aliens and all them tends to hang their hat on. But that doesn't necessarily mean that what they're proposing sans evidence is true. But at the same time, the questions themselves have merit. I can give you a good, just from personal experience, a good example of this. I did a PhD and I did very focused research on something very, very specific and ultimately useless. And <laughs> then I did reporting and I became a journalist and I had to look at so many different things and, and basically get a really broad understanding of lots and lots of different things that all kind of mesh together. And I think that when you've got the people who are outside academia looking at these subjects, actually you're going to get fresh eyes, you're going to get people making links that the academics can't make because they're so laser focused on right the that's just the the weakness of that tunnel vision of specialization yeah yeah and i've i've seen it myself you know i've been in that situation where because i was so focused on this particular sculptor you know the sculptor's doing stuff at the same time who was ignoring and maybe if i'd step back and taken a broader look mm-hmm. you know it wouldn't have been phd worthy but who knows i might have come up with different insights well everyone has to launch their interface with the world based on assumptions that we all accept. So when you challenge one of those assumptions, you're really going to have to... You're going to run up to a lot of <laughs> cognitive dissonance when, when you do that. Right, right. Because you know, 99% of that person's or our own assumptions are correct. It's just that other one assumption that is bolstered by so much confidence of proven, uh, well, we know we breathe air. We know we lay down to sleep. We know we eat food. Don't tell me this is supposed to be older because we've already established how society developed over the last 5,000 years. There was a thing with Einstein when he came up with his general theory of relativity, and there was something like 100 scientists who put together a book that was just like, here's why he's wrong. This is why he's ridiculous. And of course, he's vindicated now, but (laughs) at the time, it was just like, this guy's nuts. Ignore him. He's an outsider. He's a flake. Uh, this was a great talk, guys. I wish we had another hour or two to go into it. It's been a big focus of mine. So uh, thanks for joining me to discuss this. Ken, where can we find you? My home base is dimensionfold.com. And I've got a bunch of books. I've got poetry. I've got my mailing list, my blog. Everything's there. Uh, you can find me at dcballard.com with links to uh, my currently available work, uh, couple of uh, little shorts I have posted up there, as well as my blog, where my ongoing blog entry series. Just johncronshaw.com, J-O-N-C-R-O-N-S-H-A-W.com. And yeah, you'll find links to my mailing list of my books there. Great. And I'm available at sciencefantasyhub.com. But don't forget, if you're an author, to go onto Facebook and join the uh, Sci-Fi Roundtable. Or if you're just a reader, join Reading the Roundtable of Science Fiction and Fantasy. And until next time, listeners, take care.